Well, we are continuing in our study of the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter written to the churches in and around Ephesus this morning. We are again looking at what theologians call the household codes in Paul's letter to the churches in and around Ephesus. Household codes are the codes by which members within the household relate to one another. Paul began with the marriage relationship between husbands and wives. Then he addressed the family relationship between parents and children. And now he addresses the household relationship between masters and slaves. I'd like to read the entire passage of the household codes, including the context of Paul's reason for giving them. So I'm going to begin in chapter 5, verse 15, and I'll read through chapter 6, verse 9. We'll be focusing on chapter 6, verses 5 to 9. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, Who loves his wife, loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as as himself, And let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bondservants, Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants, bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both master and your, is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, as we read this, 
the first thing you may be thinking is, what in the world are we supposed to do with this passage on slaves and masters? It's what I was thinking all week long. What in the world are we supposed to do with the passage on slaves and masters? We don't have any slaves or masters in our households. We don't have any slaves or masters in our church. It seems like it's for Paul's day, and it certainly is. So what are we supposed to do with it? Well, the first thing that we're to do with it is to understand it. Why? You have a reason as to why we should. You know what it is, don't you? Because all Scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. We're to understand it because it's the word of God for us. So even if there is no direct, relevant application from this passage for us, although I believe there is, it is still of Paul's letter, and therefore vital to our understanding of Paul's teaching to the church. And if there is some relevant application from this passage, as I hope to show, then surely you desire to understand this passage, which is the very breath of God for you. You do, don't you? So let's try to understand the wisdom of God that Paul is instructing Christian slaves and masters in Ephesus to walk in that they might be filled with the Spirit of God. That's the, that's the umbrella, that's the rubric with which this information is being processed and given to us. We want to understand slaves and masters in Ephesus, which is the first century of the Roman Empire. Slavery has existed throughout history and was deeply ingrained in Roman society. It's estimated that about one-third of the population of Ephesus in the first century was slaves. A wealthy landowner may have owned hundreds of slaves that he used in field labor. A free citizen, any free citizen, may have owned a house slave or two for a domestic service. Now when we hear slavery mentioned, we tend to think about more more recent human history, the race-based chattel slavery practiced in Western Europe and in the Americas in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries. Slavery in Paul's day was very different. It's very different. First, racial factors played no role in Roman slavery. None. Slaves represented every race and nationality in the Mediterranean region. Most slaves were prisoners of war. What better way to prove that your military victory over people than to enslave them, to dominate them? Most slaves were prisoners of war. And then, as time went by, their children, the children of prisoners of war, Some slaves were captured and sold by enslavers. Paul mentions them in 1 Timothy 1, verse 10. Some slaves were abandoned infants. We didn't talk about this last week, but instead of abortion, babies were just abandoned. They were just left out at the end of the sidewalk, at the street, left to die, or to be picked up by others, often to find themselves in slavery. And some people were slaves because of debt, which is why we often see this word translated bond servants. We understand the idea of indentured servitude. We understand the idea of bond servants. That was a significant part of slavery in that time. But race played no part. And slavery wasn't, as we often think, for a lifetime. 
Many slaves would be emancipated during their lifetime, often by age 30, which is very different from slavery in the New World. Some owners would reward their slaves with money, which they could then save and buy their freedom and accelerate their emancipation. Many slaves had specialized skills and were given positions of responsibility. It was common for an owner to provide education and training to slaves rather than keeping them ignorant, but training them and giving them an education with the idea of a future date of release as a motivation for them to actually do good work and be productive. Freed slaves then often became Roman citizens, and their former masters became their patrons, easing their transition into independence. So they were they were working for their master with no pay. They were freed, and then they were working for him with pay. It was a working relationship. So the institution of Roman slavery was in many ways completely unlike the institution of slavery in America that we think of at the time of the Civil War. Nonetheless, it was slavery. Slavery always means that one person is owned by another person, depriving them of their freedom. Slaves in Ephesus had few legal rights. This is a, this is a culture-wide, Roman Empire-wide, even, even Greco-Roman Empire-wide institution of slavery. Slaves in Ephesus had few legal rights. They lacked honor. After all, they're only slaves. And they were subject to whatever punishments their masters deemed appropriate if they did not obey, which could be cruel and merciless. Slaves could not legally marry, nor keep custody of their children, or own property of any kind. They had no choice but to obey their masters or be punished. They had no life except the purpose determined by their masters, and they had no freedom. Nobody wanted to be a slave. Nobody. And yet... This is the context in which Paul instructs slaves and masters to live out their Christianity in this man-made, centuries-old social economic system. Because the church had slaves and masters in it, and individual households had slaves and masters in them, there were instructions for them in how to live as Christians. So it is... So, is this like the situation of wives and husbands and children and, pa- and, and parents? Is the, is the situation with slaves and masters like those? Because this is the third one of the calls to obedience that Paul says we need to walk in submission to. And the answer is no, not at all. Wives and husbands are one flesh. One flesh. A husband leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife, and the two become one flesh in the eyes of God. There's a theological basis in Scripture for the marriage relationship, and that relationship is patterned after Christ and his church. After Christ and his church. Children and parents also have a theological basis in Scripture for their relationship. It's the fifth commandment that children are to honor their parents, and it will go well with them. And that relationship of children obeying parents is patterned after Christ the Son and his obedience, his perfect obedience to God the Father. 
Slavery is a man-made institution. Paul cites no scripture to justify it. Paul does not condone it. Neither does he burn it down. He preaches the gospel to slave and free. They are both made alive in Christ, brought near in Christ, and everything he has written in this letter applies to both. Paul is certainly addressing slaves and masters in the same household who are believers and sitting in the same church on Sunday morning, but his instructions cannot be dis, uh, dismissed if a believing slave has an unbelieving master or if a believing master has an unbelieving slave. Believers, whether slaves or masters, are to be eager to maintain the spirit of unity in the bond of peace in the church and in their households. And so Paul instructs slaves and masters how to relate to one another as each represents Christ, even under this institution of Roman slavery. Look again at verse 5. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever anyone, good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. <clears throat> so Paul, when you listen to that, instructs slaves to be good slaves. He says, be good slaves. Notice Paul's instructions are oriented to the household, that is, the slave's job duties and his attitude towards his boss. That's kind of what all these instructions point to. Paul instructs slaves whose identity is now in Christ, just like us, to obey their earthly masters. Then he gives six ways to do that. And the reason or the motivation for slaves to obey their earthly masters, there's a payoff, he says. He begins with three attitudes with which slaves are to obey their masters. One, with fear and trembling. Two, with a sincere heart. And three, as you would Christ. So first, slaves are to obey their earthly masters with fear and trembling. Now Paul is not instructing slaves to live in terror of their masters, although some may have. Remember, Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He's instructing slaves to have an attitude of respect, an attitude of respect and fear towards their masters. Fear is appropriate because of the master's authority, just as we are to fear God because of his authority, but not a sense of foreboding and dread. Rather, an attitude of respect. If you're under someone's authority, you want that person to be someone you respect, don't you? But the decision to respect is yours. Respect, rather than abject fear, will enable a slave to do his best in obedience to Christ. Second, Paul instructs slaves to respond to their masters with a sincere heart. With a sincere heart. I know, you're finding it hard to listen to this. And so I'll just say it again. Paul instructs slaves to respond to their masters with a sincere heart. Now, it's February and Valentine's Day is approaching, but Paul is not talking about warm, fuzzy affections from the heart for their masters. 
A sincere heart is an innocent heart rather than a scheming heart. A sincere heart is a pure heart rather than a deceitful heart. You can imagine a slave wanting to ruin everything he can for his master, can't you? You can imagine that. But a Christian slave is to have a heart like David's heart. In 1 Chronicles chapter 29, I know, David says, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things. A slave is to maintain his sincerity of heart before God, even before his master. Third, with an attitude of respect for his earthly master and an honest heart attitude, slaves are to obey their masters as they would obey Christ. As believers, these slaves have already given their allegiance to Jesus as their ultimate master. That's where they're at. Still, as a consequence of their enslavement, they should serve their earthly master with loyalty to the household. And they can. This is what Paul tells all believers to do. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We are to apply that in our lives. And slaves are to apply that in their lives, obeying their earthly masters in obedience to Christ. Three attitudes with which slaves are to obey their earthly masters. Then Paul gives some contrasting attitudes and behaviors that slaves should put off. Remember how Paul likes to talk about put off this? Put on this. You would understand, right, these attitudes. You wouldn't serve Christ by way of eye service or as a people pleaser. You wouldn't do that. You would understand, though, why a slave might work hard when his master's watching and then not working when his master's not watching. Can't you? See, that's eye service, but that's not obedience. And that slave does not have an attitude of respect for his earthly master. He's a people pleaser. His only interest is himself. He wants his master to think well of him, but he has an insincere heart. He's deceitful, and he's self-serving. And here's the contrast in chapter, or excuse me, verses six and seven. Bond servants to Christ have a higher allegiance. They're slaves to Christ. They're slaves to Christ. Brothers and sisters, everybody serves somebody. Everybody serves somebody. Your greatness is tied to who you serve. If you serve yourself, you are a fool. Because the person you serve is a fool. True greatness comes only in serving God. That is true for all people. It's true for all people in the church in Ephesus. But just in case some of them who were slaves thought they were exempt from obeying the authority of their earthly masters, Paul reminds them who they really serve. You serve Christ when you obey your earthly master. You do the will of God when you obey your earthly master. 
Serve your earthly master from your heart, which is sincere to God. Render service to your earthly master with the goodwill with which you serve God. Don't worry about the man. Don't behave insincerely and deceitfully and dishonestly because of him or because you think you got a raw deal. You serve God. You are in Christ. Christ is your master. You are his workmanship. You have been created in Jesus Christ to do these good works prepared for you. It just happens that you are to do your works as a slave rather than a free man, at least for a time on this earth. But don't worry. You won't miss out. You're respectful, sincere, honest, good works for your earthly master will accrue to your treasure in heaven just like those of a free man. That's what Paul assures slaves of in verse 9. Whatever good works any Christian does to the Lord, the Lord will reward whether he is slave or whether he is free. Your socioeconomic status in the Roman institution of slavery does not, cannot, will not hinder your relationship with God. You are a son by the blood of Christ. You have an inheritance in Christ sealed by the Holy Spirit. Every promise, every truth, every blessing in this letter to the saints in Ephesus is true for you, dear slave. Your identity is in Christ. So, live wholeheartedly for Christ by obeying your master as you would Christ. That's Paul's instruction. Now Paul turns to the slave owners in the household in verse 9. Masters do the same. Hmm. Masters do the same to them. And stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. So Paul instructs masters to do two things. The second one is to stop threatening. Masters have nearly complete legal authority over their slaves. There are practically no restrictions on how masters can discipline their slaves if they don't obey. And as a result, discipline could be harsh and brutal. And masters would lord their authority over slaves by threatening them with this brutality. Ruling with an iron fist may bring subservience to the home, but it would not bring unity or peace, would it? Which is what Christian masters are called to be eager to maintain. The spirit of unity and the bond of peace. So stop the misuse of your authority. Stop abusing fear and intimidation as management techniques and cultivate that respect instead. What's interesting, I think, is Paul's first instruction. Masters, do the same to them. You're slaves. 
do the same that I've just commanded your slaves. What are masters to do to slaves that Paul has just instructed slaves to do to masters? It's as if Paul says, ditto. Instructions for slaves, ditto. So what's the ditto? He's not telling masters to obey slaves because he has told slaves to obey masters. He's not telling masters to serve slaves because the, the, the slave's role is to serve the master. There is no mutual submission in the Roman institution of slavery. It doesn't exist. No, it's the attitudes. It's the attitudes. It's the godly attitudes that Christian masters should have in common and share with their Christian slaves. Masters should have an attitude of respect for the people who are their slaves. Masters should have a sincere heart which produces an attitude of honesty and goodwill even toward their slaves. If masters have these same attitudes that their slaves are to have, you can see how, even within the institution of Roman slavery, a legal socioeconomic relationship, there can be household unity and peace for those who do so in obedience to Christ. Because both slaves and masters who are in Christ belong to the same household and have the same master. Now Paul's getting somewhere. You see, because that's what settles it, isn't it? Christ is the heavenly master of all of his household, and he has no partiality within him to the members of his household. He does not favor free men over slaves, nor slaves over free men, for that matter. Which means slaves and free men are equal of equal value in the eyes of Christ. Equal in value. Even though they have different roles. Even the man-made roles of slave and masters in the household. Now we have some understanding of what Paul's instruction to Christian slaves and masters is. What are we to do with this passage? What are we to do with this passage? How do we apply this passage to us in our day? Well, if we would look carefully, you'll notice that Paul's instruction to slaves and owners, his reasons and motivations to them are not dependent on that slave-owner relationship. Each of Paul's commands are principles that can be applied to any socioeconomic relationship, even those outside of the Roman institution of slavery. You see, they have to do with a Christian's attitude. They have to do with a Christian's manner in which they serve and their motivation for serving. We can apply them to any authority relationship, the most obvious being the work relationship, the employer-employee relationship. Are you looking for an opportunity to be a witness for Christ where you work? I know that many of you are because we talk about it often and how hard it is. Well, here's a good starting point. Imagine the Christian slave in Ephesus. Put on your sanctified imagination. Imagine the Christian slave in Ephesus who obeys Paul's instructions to be a good slave. 
Can't you see his fellow slaves getting angry with him over his good behavior, his better than their behavior? Oh, look at you putting a household first and making us look bad. Imagine the Christian master in Ephesus who obeys Paul's instructions to be a good master. Can't you see his fellow slave owners giving him a hard time over that? Oh, look at Mr. Compassionate treating his slaves well. What a weak fool. Now, imagine the people where you work. Understand the the pecking order where you work. See the faces. Hear the voices in your workplace as you do your job, as you do good works for Christ. It's Christ who forms the backbone of this passage. It's all about Christ. These instructions, they're all about Christ. Believers should work for their employers as if they were working directly for Jesus Christ. This is not a hypothetical exercise. This is the direct result of your new identity in Christ. So here's the Christian employment orientation program for you. Treat your boss with deep respect. She's the one in authority and she deserves it. And even when she doesn't, be respectful. Do your work with a sincere heart and a good attitude. You agreed to do this when you took the job, so have integrity. Don't be superficial. Don't be a man pleaser. Have more depth of character and depth of commitment than that. You serve Christ not the man. If you have any authority in the workplace, have these same ethical attitudes towards your employees. And do not manage people by fear and intimidation. Because you are in Christ, your top priority in line, in life and in the workplace is to do the will of God. To walk the good works that he has prepared for you. We've already learned this back in chapter 2. This is the foundation of your Christian witness in the workplace. Begin here. Now, how do your coworkers look at you? How do they talk about you when they think you're out of earshot? Mr. and Mrs. Christian in the workplace. Is it worth it? to go the extra mile and swim against the current? You could just go along and get along. Is it worth it? You see, it doesn't matter what your job is. And it doesn't matter what men think. It is the Lord who expects us to do good work. He notices when we do good works And he will reward all we have done. I think that's a good and practical application of this passage and one we should take more seriously to heart given the time we spend in the workplace. 
It may be tricky to openly preach Christ in the workplace, but there is nothing stopping you from serving Christ in the workplace as a good employee. Nothing. I want us to take another look at a a different application. It's in the church. In a sense, there were two kinds of people in the Roman world. Slave people and free people. When we look back on them, we have compassion for the slave, don't we? We're rooting for the underdog. We're cheering for the slave. We want him to get his freedom. When we look back at them, we look down on the master. We look down on the slave owner. We want him to get his. That's our orientation, which is why we have to stop and try to understand what's taking place in Ephesus so that we would understand the instructions that are being given and the implications that they have. It's why we need to take time to understand history the best we can because everyone in the context of Ephesus there and then would have read the situation the exact opposite of us. They saw slaves as the lower class. They are the people to be avoided. Don't make friends with them. And they saw masters as the upper class, the the good business owners, the one who were to be sought after. That's the reality on the ground in Ephesus in the first century. The Apostle Paul is not a social justice warrior, neither is the church. Paul is a gospel preacher, so is the church. Paul did not preach to tear down Rome, neither did Jesus. Paul preached, as commanded by Jesus, the kingdom. The kingdom. Anyone trying to gain adherence to their religion in that place at that time would have not gone to the slaves and said, hey, become part of our religion. They would have gone to the free men who make a living wage and said, yes, Come be part of our church. And here, Paul preaches the gospel to slave and free. And here, Paul addresses slaves in the church directly in this letter. He values them. He addresses slaves even before he addresses their masters. What kind of a fool does that? What kind of a church would do that? You see, the gospel's foolishness to Gentiles, isn't it? We can't know accurately, but some estimate the population of the church in Ephesus to be 60% slaves. Who heard this message? Who responded to this message? Can you imagine that church being seen as unified if slaves and masters still behave like Gentiles? Can you imagine that church walking in love and light and the wisdom of God while slaves disobeyed their masters and masters beat their slaves? And then they gathered to worship on Sunday? No! These are Christians and they have been made alive in Christ. They have been brought near in Christ. 
They are now fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. They are together children in the household of God, the church. It is through that church that his manifold wisdom, uniting wisdom, gospel wisdom of God is now being made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Even they see it. And for this eternal purpose of God... Wives submit to their own husband's leadership and husbands nourish their wives. This one flesh relationship is based in scripture and pictures Christ and his church. For this eternal purpose of God, children obey their parents and honor them based on scripture and their relationship points to Christ who obeyed all of his father's will. But what about slaves and masters in the church? Because they seem to make up a healthy percentage. Slavery is not something established by the word of God. This man-made institution is not supported by Paul's theology. So, can this gospel unite slaves and owners? Or is the gospel too weak too fragile to unite them? Can the world's institutions stand against God's gospel? Is the gospel really the power of God through the blood of Christ to make sinners alive and bring them near and bring them together? Is it? Yes. Yes, yes, in Christ, even slaves will obey their earthly masters as they obey Christ. Yes, in Christ, even slave owners will treat their slaves as they would like to be treated. In Christ, even man-made, earthly devised roles can be brought to heal by the gospel wisdom of God. And those who walk in God's wisdom by submitting to one another in these ways will be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the church will experience the spirit of unity and the bond of peace given to her. That's God's wisdom on display. But I think it's also on display in our hearts. Because we have this spiritual understanding deep in our hearts, don't we? That we're slaves to Christ. We're slaves to Christ. Once, once, we were slaves of the devil, sons of disobedience, in open rebellion against Jesus who is the master of all things in heaven and on earth. But God who is rich in mercy, loved us even in our sinful state and bought us, bought us with the blood of Christ his son. Yes, we have been redeemed from our slavery to sin and by grace through faith we are now slaves to Christ and his righteousness. Now we are in Christ doing the will of God, rendering good works from a sincere heart, 
So let's be good slaves. Let's be good slaves. Knowing that whatever good we do, we will receive back from the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow down and we submit ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ, our rightful master who bought us with his blood, shed on the cross to atone for our sins. Lord, I pray that each person here would come to saving faith, that each person here would walk in the wisdom of God in submission to our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, you are going about a work in your people to make us holy and blameless, to stand before him. And we pray you'd do it. We pray you'd do it now. Lord, we pray that you would find us walking in your wisdom and that you would fill us with your spirit. This is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.